Between classic novels, noir detectives and mysteries, it's like we're stepping back in time this week on The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas. A danger that you'll never see coming in The Invisible Man. Are you okay? Someone's sitting in that chair. The Invisible Man. An intriguing mystery in Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears. Miss Fisher. But the scene of a murder. On February 27th. Wherever you go, trouble follows. An adventure awaits. You know the quickest way to escape me? Help me with this case. That's so mysterious. Neither of you are leaving until this case is solved. So glamorous. Is this your idea of sweet nothings? So dangerous. Miss Fisher, quickly! It's criminal. Who are you? Detective drama in Motherless Brooklyn. Okay, listen. I got something wrong with me. That's the first thing to know. I got threads in my heads. I got threads in my heads, man. I twitch and shout a lot. <laughs> Makes me look like a damn freak show. Can't you ever I'm cut that out? I'm sorry. Touch it, Bailey. I'm sorry. But inside my head's an even bigger mess. I can't stop twisting things around. Words and sounds especially. Have to keep playing with them until they come out right. Sorry. And an actor's personal journey in Honeywood. Hello? I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would not. What am I being arrested for? What am I being arrested for? Huh? You think you're hot? Because you don't know how good I am at what I do. That's this week on The Cinema Club. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Crew and lucky for you, I am back. Yes, my name is Michael Campbell and I will be your host and joining me as always is Vary McIntyre. Hello. And Dan Miranda. Hello. Now your chance to win a gold class double pass coming up just a little later on, but first. Hello. The Invisible Man. H.G. Wells is the father of science fiction and as such has had a huge influence on movies and pop culture. Well, now one of his most famous stories, The Invisible Man, is in the hands of podcast favourite Blumhouse. Is this a fresh new take on a story that's been told before? Oh, this is an incredible take and it is a fresh take. It's something that I, did, I, that I didn't expect. In The Invisible Man, Cecilia, played by Elizabeth Moss, uh, escapes an abusive partner and soon after hears of his suicide. Instead of being able to move on, she begins to suspect that her ex is stalking her, but while invisible. So, you know, obviously sounds crazy. And uh, she struggles to convince those around her and the ones that she loves safe. Now, and given your tone, it sounds like you really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great film. Like uh, when I thought I had the plot figured out, it was pulled from underneath me, the rug. <laughs> Proverbial rug. <laughs> yeah, so obviously... The Cecilia's character gets um, put into question, like her sanity is just slipping away because she's convinced that her husband has been turned invisible mm. and is after her. And obviously for everyone else around her, that just seems crazy. And that seems to be quite um, a bit of a sore spot for I think people who have escaped abusive relationships to be gaslighted. Mm. So he was gaslighting her in their relationship and then even afterwards as well. So she's questioning whether is she making this up or is he really there? Things start moving around. She thinks there are dents in the chair that someone's sitting there mm. and, yeah, the people around her start pushing her away and thinking she's, like, too crazy and, and yeah, she gets into a lot of trouble. 
Now, this movie was written and directed by friend of the show, former guest and Melbourne boy, Lee Winnell. And he had said something that I thought was really, really interesting, his, his take on this. He said, uh, in the original novel and the original movies, the Invisible Man's the main character, but it's so much scarier if he isn't, mm. if there's someone mm. else as the main character, because you never know if he's there or not. No. And I think that's so spot on. And I, actually I, invisible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> because in the, um, the original 1933 film that was based on the novel, it was – he was sort of like wrapped in, in like bandages, bandages so yeah, and he kind of looked like a mummy. A yeah. Cats. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit comical yeah. <laughs> um, for the time as well, but even more so when you look back on it with modern sensibilities, um, kind of like those um, B-grade like zombie movies and Bride of Frankenstein and all those sorts of, of. Well, and speaking of things like Bride of Frankenstein, I think we need to talk just briefly about the universal monsters and the struggles that they've had recently with the universal monsters. Traditionally, they're Frankenstein, mm. Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula, the Invisible Man. Uh, and I think seeing the success of Marvel, they were so keen mm. to try and build a cinematic yeah. universe, which they used to be, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. All the universal movies were interconnected. And they've tried to do it again with Dracula Untold was their first attempt. They thought this is going to start a whole universe of universal movies. Mm. And then it failed at the box office and people didn't really love it. And then they completely started again with Tom Cruise in The Mummy. And they said, this is going to be a start of what's called the Dark Universe. And they took a big cast photo of everyone that they had cast. Johnny Depp was going to be the Invisible Man. And, and then no one really liked it. And it didn't make it money <laughs> and it failed again. And I think the smartest thing they did was strip the budgets way back and mm. give it to Blumhouse mm. yeah. and make scary Movies with yes. it, yes, which is their Universal Monsters. It makes sense. Meant to be scary. They're meant to be scary. And mm. one of the things that I felt made this film so you know scary was the way it's shot because you'll see the the panning of the camera go over to seemingly nothing and back again, and you're trying to find something within the frame, but there's nothing there. Yeah, maybe because either nothing is or something is, but yeah, it's just such a clever way. Yeah, it it, it speaks so much to like film language because uh, you're right. Sometimes camera will be on a character and it'll pan just ever so slightly off to a corner of a room and back, mm. and just visually you're like, okay, well now he's here yeah. <laughs> because you wouldn't have shown that for or any is other he? reason. Oh, I don't know. Or is, is he, he tricking it, us? Yeah, and yeah. it kind of gets in your head. And uh, again, where well, we were lucky enough to go to a, a Q and A with with Lee Winnell, mm. and he was saying that at times their frame that they like him and the cinematographer were looking at the monitor. And there's just nothing in the frame. No. And there are times where they're going, is this anything? Yeah. Like, what are we doing here? Is it scary or dumb? <laughs> but do you know what also helps with the, the the framing of the picture is the sound quality and the sound design. Yes. It's mm. You notice it so much, I think, mm. in horror movies. Oh. Uh, movies like the A Quiet Place yep. or Krampus or movies like this. Sound is such a huge element of this mm. because especially if he's an invisible man. Yeah. You don't have much to look at. Yeah, you're really alerted by a creak in the floor or, <laughs> or a door opening or anything like that. Yeah. And sound plays such an important role. So Lee Winnell was known mainly for his, like, his horror movies, like The Conjuring and Saw and whatnot. Yeah. But I think what he's been doing better than most people lately is action. Upgrade had some pretty kind of mm. inventive action sequences and there's one real standout scene in this which is equal parts scary and kind of exhilarating to do with a, a mental hospital. Uh, we won't give away too much but it's kind of like a, a bit of an, a horror action sequence. I'm yeah, definitely it. action. It's amazing. Mm. I The whole time I was trying to wrap my head around how they did it because I think that there's so much there that is so intricate and complicated that you don't consider. But it was so thrilling. I haven't seen a, a, a sequence like that outside of maybe like a John Wick film that really captured that like dynamic, interesting action but also kept you on the edge of your seat the whole time. Yeah. 
One of the actors in the movie, um, Aldous Hodge, was uh, asked in an interview whether they had people dressed in green suits, like wrestling with the characters and, and being, you know, the invisible person and and playing in these scenes so the actors had something to work with. And he said, yeah, sometimes, but mostly it was just the actors having to do fight scenes by themselves. Yeah. And I think that's incredible. <laughs> that's yeah, Elizabeth Moss, uh, yeah. she has a, a, an entire sequence by herself, which yeah, is incredibly well choreographed yep. and... Mm. Uh, like the, the, the amount of, like, I think it's such a well-crafted film as well as just being like well-written and well-directed yeah. and just like for, for, for how low the budget was and it was filmed here in, in Sydney and for all intents and purposes, kind of an Australian film, Australian crew, Australian writer. It is, yeah. The predominantly Australian cast. Only, from, yeah, the only Americans were the, I think, four of the main actors. Yeah. Everyone else was Australian. Which mm. gives me so much hope because sometimes I rag on Australian films but the yeah. quality of this film was so yes. high yes. that it makes me excited. So who do you think should see or not see? Invisible Man. <laughs> I think if you love a really good, thrilling horror, this is probably one of the better ones I've seen in the last six months at least. It has great story and characters, people you can relate to, and so many unexpected twists and turns in this adaptation of The Invisible Man. So if you're into really cleverly designed films that have a really thrilling aspect, the Invisible Man will certainly tick every box. There's so many twists and turns within the story. I think... In terms of characters and the way they interact, it's sort of probably one of the best things I've seen in a while when it comes to horror. Yeah, I was on edge for a lot of this. Um, it was really thrilling and I, it's a really great modern reimagination of this story from a different perspective and it's great to see mostly Australian cast and crew working on this sort of film. More of this universal, less of Tom Cruise. Miss She has arrived. Wherever you go, trouble follows. Miss Fisher, quickly! Neither of you are leaving until this case is solved. You're nothing but diamonds. On February 27th... Someone very close didn't want the crime to be revealed. Mystery and adventure. You know the quickest way to escape me? Never looked so good. You could help me with this case. Who are you? Miss Fisher is probably the closest thing Australia has to a Sherlock Holmes or Poirot or, you know, however you pronounce his name, from books to TV and now the silver screen. Is this a mystery worth solving? Oh, my. So if Downton Abbey fans thought they had to wait long between the end of the series and the movie, they waited three years. Miss Fisher's fans have waited five years. <laughs> so for the uninitiated, Miss Fisher is a glamorous sleuth working in Melbourne in the late 1920s and they had three seasons of the TV show and it was wildly popular. And five years later, picking up at the end of the 2015 third season, we find Miss Fisher on a new adventure She's just broken a young Bedouin woman called Shireen out of a Jerusalem prison and taken her back to the safety of her uncle in London. And there Shireen begs Miss Fisher to help her uncover the truth about what happened to her family and they begin to unravel this wartime mystery concerning a priceless emerald and an ancient curse. Now, you mentioned the, the TV series there. Now, is this? do you have to have seen the TV series to go into this film well, or does it stand alone? For me, Camber, I had not hmm. seen. This is my first introduction to Miss Fisher and so I went in completely blind and I feel like yeah. having not seen the characters and the relationships built up throughout the series, it really does sort of, you sort of grasp what's going on, but I think you would have yeah. way more weight yeah. knowing. But it's not so yeah. dense in law that it's it, Gosh, it's no. going to leave you they, the Yeah, they give some lines yeah. away where you can just sort of pick up on, yeah. okay, they've had a relationship mm -hmm. or that's how they know each other. But there's a few new characters in this as well and it's a completely different storyline. So you don't have to have seen the series. And because it was a while ago, 
maybe you want to catch up on what is all this hoo-ha mm. about Miss Fisher and why has it been so popular? And you can just start with this film. So in September 2017, a Kickstarter was established to support this film and actually within 48 hours it had reached its goal of 250K. Yeah. So they've obviously got a lot of fans yeah, who want to see this. So we were talking about Invisible Man just moments ago, which is kind of an Australian production mm-hmm. filmed here and the production quality is yeah. really high. Now, Miss Fisher was always a TV series and has been slightly crowdfunded. Mm-hmm. Do you think the production values are still on par with what, what we would consider a movie or does it come off a little cheap? I don't think it's cheap. You can definitely tell the difference in the, the cinematography and the filming quality, I suppose, because Miss Fisher is more, I guess the difference is they film a lot of outside scenes, which is more obvious when you're somewhere different whereas invisible man has a lot of inside Interior, scenes yeah. and it's just buildings which could be anywhere yeah but like when you they all they just had to build an apartment on the fox studios yeah Sydney, and they're done so exactly. yeah so there's no real obvious way to tell where it's set and with miss fisher when you have a lot of outdoor scenes they're trying to set it in london and you're like Oh, that's um Werribee Mansion. So maybe for people in Melbourne that's gonna come across as being cheap because you know it's not filmed in London. But even though I live in Melbourne and being originally from Adelaide, I haven't seen that house. So I was like, Yeah, that could have been London, sure. Like <laughs> mansion. What so who do you think should see Miss Fisher? I think this is definitely for lovers of say, period drama with like a comedic edge because there's a bit of humour in this. Yeah. Obviously, if you like the series, it's a must-go. And I think it's it's like the perfect matinee-type film, do you know? It's 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 almost like a mix between Knives Out and a bit of Downton Abbey with a sprinkling of Indiana Jones, I <laughs> surprisingly. Yeah, I thought that too. I felt like it was a bit of Tintin crossed with Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, those like old school Tintin episodes going yeah, on adventures yeah. and it's very worldly. They're in Jerusalem, then they're in London, then they're in Melbourne. Werribee Mansion. So a lot of, <laughs> so a lot of globe trotting. Um, and if you like those sort of films like Murder on the Orient Express or the shows like Miss Marple. Also still in cinemas, Call of the Wild. A sled dog struggles for survival in Yukon. The Lodge. More snow, but it's a horror. And The Professor and the Madman. About the writing of the Oxford English Dictionary. Yes, you can hear about all of those films and, in fact, everything that's in cinemas right now in our back catalogue, which you can access from whichever podcast app you'd like. So here's something cool and a bit of a change. I don't know if you guys know this, but you're both my best friends. And as such, I think we should go to the Disney Best Friend Film Festival. Yeah. Now, sure. What is that you're asking, Dan? What film is playing this yes. week? Yes. <laughs> it's Toy Story. You've got Which a friend one? in me, Toy Story 1. <laughs> the <laughs> Origins. The Origins, yeah. It's like a classic film. In it's fact, the best one. It's the, the second film I ever remember seeing at the cinema. So it is super, super nostalgic. Showing your age now. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's super, super nostalgic for me. So if you've got a BFF and you guys both love Disney, go check out the Disney Best Friend Film Festival. webbed up in this somehow and these people aren't going to stop you got a head just like mine always turning things around some people call it a gift but it's a brain affliction just the same you remember what i said she doesn't know she doesn't know what don't i know Motherless Brooklyn has been a passion project for star edward norton since the book was released back in 1999 so much so that he also jumped behind the camera as director for the first time in 20 years too. 
Was it worth the wait? Ooh, wait. That's very. <laughs> that's a very loaded word. This film felt very lengthy and fragmented. It was like a bunch of scenes that only really feel chronologic because of the protagonist's journey, <laughs> which is also narrated by by Edward Norton's character. The story of Motherless Brooklyn, it's, it's set in the mid-50s, which the book was originally set in the 90s, and private detective Lionel Esrog, played by Edward Norton, has Tourette's and he explores the jazz club's slums of Brooklyn and Harlem in order to discover clues in uncovering the murder of his friend and mentor, Frank Minna, played by the one and only Bruce Willis. Let's just, first of all, this movie's too long. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's almost like a frustrating movie in a way because the art design is beautiful. Yeah, it's noir. There's kind of an interesting story mm. there, but it's kind of elongated and it's, it's bogged down in kind of like cliché. Uh, it's oh, like yes. every mm. noir detective thing that there is is, mm. is in this. He sits at a wooden desk behind the, the blinds that are drawn in the office and whatnot. Mm. Which is so interesting because you mentioned that the book is set in the 90s. Mm. Uh, it was released in 99 and it's set in 99. Mm. Uh, it, in the book they do, it's like a hard-boiled detective story and they all talk like it's the 50s and that would have been kind of interesting yeah. because I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, the movie Brick. It's the first movie Ryan Johnson ever made and it's a high school drama but it's also a hard-boiled 50s detective story and that juxtaposition, that mashup mm. of two things that don't meet made it kind of fresh and interesting. Yeah. I think maybe that would have helped because that's what it doesn't really feel fresh. Well, yeah, Edward Norton said that it would be better fitted to the 50s. And if it was set in the 90s or 2000s with gumshoe detectives, it would have felt ironic and maybe not taken as seriously. But there perhaps would have been a way of doing it. But I think the main thing with setting it in the 50s was that they were able to focus more on these two new characters that Norton introduces for the film and that's mostly Alec Baldwin's character who's based on a city planner called Robert Moses who is largely to blame for the Brooklyn Dodgers leaving Brooklyn for LA. (laughs) So very hated for that. Um, But for the not rich and affluent who follow Dodgers, he was basically taking slums of African-American and low poverty areas and knocking them down to build highways and parks. And there's another character in here played by Gugumbatha Raw, who is loosely based on the activist Jane Jacobs, who battled Robert Moses over these slum clearances in Greenwich Village. So that is the main crux of this storyline. So Edward Norton's character gets drawn into this, this movement, this political and social upheaval at the time, trying to investigate Bruce Willis's murder. So that And see again, that's that's quite an interesting mm, idea. Yeah. Uh, and there, there is bones of a an interesting movie in here. Yeah, I think it's 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 a bit of a vanity project to me. It's written by, directed by, and starring Edward Norton. Yeah, and it's quite a flashy performance. Uh, and he, he did a lot of research about Tourette's syndrome, and it's been it's got the seal yeah. of approval for an accurate depiction of Tourette's, and mm. which is kind of nice because normally yeah. it's depicted just swearing all the time mm. and stuff yeah. like that. But it gets bogged down in him having scene after scene after yeah. scene, plus voiceover, plus voiceover of him that I think. There's a good like hour and a half version of this, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it just has an extra hour added on. Correct. Yeah. So who do you think should see Motherless Brooklyn? Ooh, so I think this film is for those who enjoy, obviously, very cliched uh, detective films. Um, it's uh, got political overtones. Norton's portrayal of the character is the best thing in the film for me. It's a heavily laid performance. As you said, it's got the seal of approval from the Tourette's Council. So in addition to that, you've got, as we mentioned, many of 
some huge stars. You've got obviously mm. Bruce Willis, Willem Dafoe, Alec Baldwin, Leslie Mann. You've got Gugu and Bartha Raw. And I feel like I see her once a month in every movie. <laughs> it's a very ambitious movie looking at important topics like discrimination and politics. But you do have to be patient with it. And if you can forgive its pacing, there is a good story in it. I don't need to talk about my dad. Good take, good take. You did it. You did it. Good job, everybody. My dad's not the reason I drink. He's the reason I work. I'm getting oh. Come here. Come here. Child life and yeah. yeah. You have good instincts. I have good instincts? Yeah, I got rodeo instincts. clown instincts. Well, I could never make it in Hollywood. You could if you start when I did. How do you think it feels to have my son paying me? How do you think that feels? You wouldn't be here if I didn't pay you. In limited release this week is a film that feels so personal that sometimes I question if I should even be watching it. Film written by Shia LaBeouf about his own career in which he plays his own father. Is there a lot to dissect in this film? Oh boy, yes. <laughs> oh honey boy, yes. Shia LaBeouf is no stranger to bearing himself to the world. And the public um, at times when he's arrested. Yes, very um, <laughs> physically, emotionally and spiritually. And this film actually came about because he was arrested for public intoxication in 2017 and ordered to go to rehab for 10 weeks. And it was there he discovered he had PTSD and so began writing this film. And it wasn't very long after he got out of rehab that they started filming. So it would have been very fresh and visceral for him to do this. I honestly do think that knowing that piece of information before you watch this film makes this film very emotional. This is a very semi-autobiographical account of Shia LaBeouf's life in which he plays his own father, as you've said, and it moves between different actors who play Otis, who technically is Shia LaBeouf's character, but I think also becomes its own character in itself of just Otis. One as a child actor enduring a confusing and turbulent life living in a motel and then as a young adult struggling to reconcile with his father while in rehab. The word personal is going to come up a lot when mm-hmm. we talk about this movie. It's so interesting to see him on screen work out his own demons, yeah. essentially. And this seems to be one big multi-million dollar mm-hmm. way of figuring out his own father. Uh, a lot of time is spent yeah. with the relationship between him and his dad and his dad in real life and in the movie, uh, like a, they've been convicted of criminal offenses, uh, drug addiction, all kinds of stuff. And I think it, it, to me it seems like, Shia LaBeouf is desperately trying to find like the humanity in his own dad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's very cathartic. It's so cathartic. Mm. And I I think it it comes off in a, in a way it's kind of a, a beautiful movie because it's about healing and, and, and being able to understand other people's perspectives. And even though his dad is objectively quite a bad guy in the film, I don't think he ever completely plays him as irredeemable he gives him moments of yeah. humanity because, you know, it's his own father. That's yeah. what he's going to do. See, this is my critique of the film, even though I do agree that it is very beautiful and a well-told story and the characters are, are great and very engaging. The problem I had with this film is the same that I had with A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood where the main character has to forgive his father in the end and for this one Shia LaBeouf is trying to do the same thing and I feel like it's, you know, again, that's his personal 
choice if he wants to do that and if he feels that's what he has to do to move on. But my personal opinion is that you don't have to forgive an abuser and you can still move on with your life. So I was a little bit like, nah, don't do it. No. (laughs) But I can understand. So this film is fragmented into two different time zones. You've got the older Otis going through the rehab and then it goes back to when uh, Shia playing his father and his son Otis living in a motel and that's in the early 2000s. And I remember when I was probably the same age as Shia LaBeouf or Shia LaBeouf, watching Even Stevens. And it's, it's really interesting watching this movie, Honey Boy, thinking about what's going on behind the scenes because I was the same age and like thinking, oh, this is what parents do to, you know, get fame and fortune for their kids or, you know, the exploitation. And it's, I kept thinking about that whilst watching this. And also uh, I would say the majority of this movie, let's say 60% is set with Noah Jupe uh, playing Otis. Mm. And then yeah. the other part has Lucas Hedges mm. playing Otis. And I think credit to him, his Shia LaBeoufisms are quite good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, he, there's something about the way that Shia like holds himself and whatnot. Mm. Yeah. And I guess I hadn't really noticed it was a thing until Lucas Hedges was kind of doing it in the movie, even just to the point where they're filming a big action scene. He's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Shia does do that. <laughs> and I, I, I think uh, he, he is really great as well. And it's like the, the idea of writing a movie which you play your dad and then cast two other people to play you, just trying to get yeah. your head around mm. the psychology of that. I think it's, it's crazy, but I think it's kind of beautiful. And in direct contrast to Motherless Brooklyn where Edward Norton put too much of himself in there, even though this film is literally <laughs> about Shia LaBeouf, he's gotten someone else to direct yes. it. Yeah. And she is an amazing director, mm. Alma Harrell, who um, has done mostly music videos and shorts, yeah. documentaries. She directed this experimental music video for Sigur Ross and that actually starred Shire as well. So yeah. they've had this history. And in fact, all the music, big shout out to the music uh, done by Alex Summers, who has a project called uh, Yonzi and Alex, Yonzi from Sigur Ross, mm. uh, Yonzi and Alex. It's like this beautiful atmospheric post-rock kind of soundtrack. I love it. I actually went and downloaded it. Mm. Uh, so the music's beautiful. The acting's beautiful. Who do you think should see Honey Boy? So I think if you're a parent, I think this is the film that you should see to show you maybe what not to do. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> But the performances are fantastic in this and it's got such raw emotion that mm. I think that's why a lot of us maybe felt uncomfortable at times. But there is beauty in that unease and I think uh, it's sort of like a car crash. You cannot look away, but... Yeah, yeah, that's a really great summary of mm. it, actually. Shire's performance reminded me of his roles in Peanut Butter Falcon. Mm. So if you liked that and American Honey as well, it's very gritty and authentic. For some, I think this story could be very painful to watch and for others it could be cathartic, but I think everyone will be moved by the story and the performances. Now, for your chance to win a gold-class double pass, simply head to the Village Cinema's Facebook or Instagram page, look for the Cinema Crew post and answer the question. What or who is your favourite movie monster? Yes, simply leave your comment with the hashtag TheCinemaCrew for your chance to win. Next week, Ben Affleck and director Gavin O'Connor retain for The Way Back, romantic drama in The Photograph, a remake of a French comedy in Downhill, and legal thrills in Dark Waters. Until next time, thank you, Vari. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. My name is Cambo, and this is The Cinema Crew with Village Cinema.